Morning. This verse is from 1 Peter 1, 10 to 12. Concerning this salvation, the prophets, who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was not revealed to them that they were not served themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even the angels long to look into these things. Thank you. Well, good morning, church. Again, my name is uh, Rich Brown. I serve here as one of the pastors. And uh, again, our text this morning comes from 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12. Uh, with that in mind, let's go ahead and come before the Lord our God in prayer as we open up his word. <clears throat> Father, we're thankful that you have given us your word. You are the one who loves to give your children good gifts, and you've first and foremost given us yourself. So, Father, we're thankful for that. We're thankful that you are a God who reveals yourself to us, that you love to make known yourself to us, and that in this time, as we have the privilege of better understanding you and knowing you, Father, we ask that you would use this time through the preaching of your word um, to simply bless us, to cause us to see Christ more fully, to appreciate him and to grow in our affection again toward him. God, we ask that as your word is proclaimed that it would go forth with great power, not that it's anything in, in me per se at all, it's just really your word that is going forth. So Father, as your word is opened, as we read from it, would you give us uh, eyes of faith, hearts that long to see you more deeply and more sincerely. And God, may you use this kindling, this message uh, and light it ablaze with your fire, O oh Father, uh, that it would spark within us a deeper desire to know you. And so we ask all this in Christ's holy name. Amen. So two weeks ago, uh, the students here at Grace and many of the adults and myself had the privilege of taking part in a little project that I called Recreate Day. It was a fun time, and uh, as many of you know, uh, the middle schoolers, during Foundations, the Sunday school, quick little plug for that, it's a great time, right after the service. Uh, at 11 o'clock, they'll head down the hall and meet in kind of my office slash the middle school youth room. The high schoolers, though, end up going out back to one of the trailers, and if you know anything of the trailers, you know that over time, this little thing called entropy has happened. <laughs> over time, we've inherited, and it's been great, but over time, we've inherited too many things to fit into that small room. We had five couches, not just a couple, but five couches. We had about 20, if I remember counting it correctly, 20 of the same chairs that you're sitting in back there just kind of shuffled around the whole room. Uh, a large ping pong table, a foosball table, which is my personal favorite, love using that. Uh, a large basketball net thing like you'd see over at Chuck E. Cheese, really big, <laughs> it took up, took up much of the side of the room. And uh, it had broken over time, unfortunately. I think Chase Morgan was the only one who was using it by that point. Uh, but anyways, uh, you know, again, entropy had happened. Like there were so many things in there and so much more that was just kind of breaking over time. And so we figured, hey, it's high time for a renovation of the high school room. <laughs> uh, and so what we did was he decided, uh, oh, I forgot to mention too, by the way, this is really important, but not only was there also like extra carpeting from the sanctuary in the youth room, there was also this nasty smell. 
<laughs> definitely want to mention that because it was definitely a skunk that had gotten underneath there at one point. <laughs> Lit the whole place up. Anyways, uh, and don't worry, it wasn't like the bodily odor of one of our teenagers. It really was one of the skunks that had gotten underneath there. <laughs> it's been long taken care of, don't worry. But it was just nasty. Again, it was time for a renovation. And so when I first pitched the idea to our high schoolers back in the spring, you should have seen their face. This idea of kind of cleaning things up and starting over, getting rid of what was broken and, and just kind of disheveled and starting over. And they were excited about it. You know, this time was a little overdue for them, you know. And so what we did was we got a bunch of us together, uh, Bruce Seeger and Matt Johnson, Angie Gens and others, many, I mean, over a dozen of the high schoolers and middle schoolers included, all got together to help pitch in and pitch, literally, the old junk from the high school youth room and, and start over. Uh, we then spent, uh, you know, the day, recreate day, painting the rooms, this really cool, modern, sleek gray color all around the perimeter of the room. And then recreate day turned into recreate days, plural, <laughs> because we realized there was so much to do. And so then we did the trim and the doors, this like really cool, deep cobalt blue. You can kind of picture it in your mind's eye. And you're definitely welcome to go swing by and see it now. But it's been gutted out. It's been totally repainted. I put in a couple air wicks, don't worry, so it smells good now. <laughs> uh, and then we also put in some new furniture. Very cheap, very affordable, kind of Walmart-style furniture, right? Uh, a coffee area for Madeline Gens and others who like coffee, <laughs> just to give her a shout-out. <laughs> I'm also in the same boat, don't worry. Uh, and... Uh, you know, a dedicated teaching area, a place where there's really a focus on the teaching of the word, and a place where there's focus for games and entertainment. And so things are kind of more segmented and organized. And again, this past Sunday, after several recreate days had happened, um, we had the privilege of unveiling it to them. You know, this past Sunday night during Crossers, their youth group. And you should have seen the looks on their faces then. Because there was this excitement, and there was this sense of, wow, this is a place we can call home. <laughs> Many of the middle schoolers, especially the younger rising sixth graders, just jumped immediately on top of the couches, made it their home. <laughs> and it was a fun time. And it was just so sweet to see this kind of ugly thing that had kind of, again, fallen into entropy over time, become this beautiful place that was desirable and appealing, even though it had not been before. Now, I say all this because it's amazing how Seasons of change in our life, seasons where, things to seem, seasons where things seem to be falling apart and falling into that state of entropy, as it were, even suffering in various degrees as they hit us over and over and over again, how they honestly end up making us appreciate more deeply the bounty of God's grace given us in the gospel. The bounty of his grace, even that which is called common grace, that has to do with how God lavishes his children every single day with good gifts. And how in the midst of these moments of heartache or suffering, these moments where we experience his grace just make us stand in awe all the more. Sometimes we experience different kinds of various sufferings, and we all do, week by week. We experience perhaps times when close friends turn their backs on us. We experience times where our places of employment cause us to feel a greater stress than we feel like we can even manage ourselves. Sometimes we feel like people who are closest to us kind of prick us like needles by saying things or doing things that cause us harm, even though they don't mean that. Sometimes we experience seasons of feeling drained, feeling lethargic or empty, being poured out over and over again without being poured into. And 
maybe even we experience times of purposelessness, like a boat without a sail lost at sea and the cold blue open. My point this morning <clears throat> is that suffering itself often leaves us with questions, but as simple as it sounds, the Spirit of God leads us to the answer. So suffering leaves us with questions, but the Spirit of God leads us to the answer. And that's Christ mainly. As we take a closer look at 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12 this morning in today's sermon, we're going to be expounding upon the specific grace that is mentioned here in this passage. This grace that was given to a suffering and broken church that also belongs not simply to those immediate recipients of this letter, but to also us as the body of Christ 2,000 years removed. And so this morning, I want us to focus upon three main points. Three points, as always. <laughs> God's immutability, God's faithfulness in the midst of our suffering, and finally, God's answer to our suffering. So his immutability, his faithfulness, and his answer. First off, first up to bat, God's immutability. Now, I don't know about you, but the verbiage of 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12 is more than a bit confusing at first. Like when you were hearing even Ethan read that a moment ago, if you were like me, when you first glanced at it, you're probably thinking, like, man, Peter, can you kind of pause? Like maybe throw in a few periods? Can you take a breath while you're saying all of these lofty things? I mean, he basically goes from talking about, even right here between verses 10 through 12, you know, how the prophets had prophesied about the grace that was to be these people who then earlier he describes were in the dispersion and this same prophetic message was actually revealed later in time through Christ's sufferings and his glory. And then it goes on to explain how, you know, that was really what this was all pointing to and yet you're in the dispersion and it's uh, such a marvelous matter that even angels long to look at it. And it's like, can you just catch your breath, Peter? <laughs> like, you've, you've packed in so, so much. We might even be confused just hearing that right now. There's so much that he's packing into it. And so rather than spend, you know, 30 minutes, uh, and hopefully not more than that <laughs> for all of our sakes, but rather than spending, you know, 30 minutes trying to, or more than 30 minutes even trying to do justice and unpack this whole thing, I would rather focus upon the core of this very passage. And the core, I believe, is namely Christ's sufferings and the subsequent glories. So I want us to kind of hone in on this. And we'll do justice to the rest of it, of course, but I want us to hone in on that aspect in particular. Christ's sufferings and the subsequent glories. Now, um, let's see. As we all know, uh, Peter himself had walked with Christ for more than three years. You know, as a disciple of his, one who knew him well, uh, as, as Pastor Tom and I were going through the Gospel of John series back in the spring, we had talked about how the Peter, uh, that Peter and James and John had even seen, as I mentioned in an earlier sermon this year, they had seen Christ transfigured right before their very eyes. They had seen all of his glory on display upon that mount. And even Moses and Elijah appeared on his left and his right, signifying that all of the law and all of the prophets really point to Christ. All of their fulfillment is in Christ. And it was fitting then that following upon that sermon series back in the spring on the Gospel of John, that then we focused upon the Ten Commandments. And of course, that's a much easier you know, passage from Exodus 20 to preach. It's not like First Peter where it's confusing and a lot of high language, you know, simply it was do not steal, do not murder. But even those laws have everything to do with Christ. The totality of the law ultimately points to Jesus and his fulfillment of the law. 
And I think it's fitting that in our passage this morning as well, that we, as we moved even in our sermon series beyond the law to now this writing from the New Testament, Peter alludes to the prophets, kind of the other side of the coin of the Old Testament, so to speak, the law and the prophets. And Peter, his main point is that all of the prophets ultimately were prophesying about Christ. Christ. So now, context. I want us to look a little bit at historical context here. It's been widely believed that Peter's first letter to the church here uh, was written in the early 60s. I'm not talking about the 1960s, but I'm talking about, you know, 80, 63, 64 or so. And things were much different back then. Uh, what was going on? <laughs> what was going on back then is what Peter talks about in the very first verse here in 1 Peter 1, the dispersion. The dispersion of the Jewish believers to Pontus and Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, etc. Modern-day Turkey, if you want to kind of put it on a map. What was happening is that, you know, in God's providence, these people were scattered. They were forced to flee from their own homes, their own livelihoods, their places of employment, because they were being persecuted, not only by the Roman government, who didn't understand this, this religion called Christianity, nor why people would worship a, a savior who was crucified upon a cross, but the Jews who did not believe the gospel, who did not receive Christ as the promised Messiah, they also looked upon these Jewish believers in Christ as being foreign, and they were persecuted as such. And so what First Peter 1 through, uh, 1, 1 through 2 is describing is those elect exiles who were in the dispersion, those chosen people of God who were known by God and loved by God and yet were considered exiles, people who had been displaced. And I'm not talking about displacement figuratively or a mental kind of displacement. They weren't out of their minds. <laughs> These people who were displaced were being displaced physically in a locative sense. And so Peter's writing to them, reassuring them of the faithfulness of God, and especially regarding this first point, the unchangingness of God, what theologians call his immutability, the fact that he doesn't change. What's amazing, friends, is that over time, even though we are now 2,000 years, almost completely 2,000 years removed from these very events, it's amazing that as we become more and more removed from these things, the more and more archaeological research and evidence and record findings have actually proven the Bible to be not only verifiable, but also trustworthy. Have you ever thought about that before? Over time, we've actually discovered that these events, the Bible claims that they're historic, but in reality, they've been proven over and over again, even through scientific research and study, that these things actually did indeed happen. We are forced to deal with history, right? We're also forced to deal with the historicity of the Bible. The interesting thing is that not only is God's word trustworthy, but what does that say about him? It says that he himself is trustworthy, right? Again, God is trustworthy, but he's also immutable. He's unchanging in his character and his attributes and his being. He never changes. He's always the same. We read in Exodus 20 over the summertime from that Ten Commandments series that the same God who brought people out of distress, out of their bondage to the Egyptians, 
the fierce oppressor of Pharaoh and those underneath him. The same God who rescued these people from their oppressors, who displayed their mighty salvation, his mighty salvation before their very eyes, who led them out of their exile and slavery, so to speak, into a land of wilderness before leading them over the Jordan River into the promised land of Canaan is the same God of the New Testament. He is the same God who saw his elect exiles here in 1 Peter 1, the same God who saw them in their bondage to slavery and and bondage to sin and who rescued them from their oppression under the weight and the power and the presence of sin by Christ himself, by Christ's sufferings and his glory that followed. He is the same God who displayed his mighty salvation before their very eyes, who let his son be crucified for their sake. He's the same God who leads his people, us, through our time of exile, our time of suffering, our wilderness journey, so to speak, where we feel the sufferings and the trials and the tribulations of this very life all alike. He's the same God who leads each and every one of us as believers across that Jordan River, which we call death, over into the promised land of glory, which is far better than Canaan. The theme, and one of the major themes of Scripture, is this idea of judgment for sin followed by grace. This idea of uh, suffering followed by glory in the Latin, as ancient theologians used to put it, is this idea of post tenebras lux, after darkness, light. This is one of the major themes of Scripture. And this all sounds great, but our sufferings, if we're being honest with ourselves, they do often leave us with more questions than answers oftentimes, right? And if you're like most believers, you've experienced doubt. You've experienced seasons of doubt even. You've perhaps been in a season of doubt even recently. And Christians who deal with doubt is hardly a new thing. The believers here in 1 Peter were faced, they were plagued with all kinds of doubt. They knew God to be faithful, and yet here you can almost hear it in the subtext as Peter's writing to them. He's essentially saying, continue on in the faith. You're faced with so much suffering and and heartache, but the faith is worth holding on to. My friends, when doubts come our way, Faith is often made stronger in the midst of our doubts as we actually face them. Because doubting actually causes us to seriously consider the integrity and the truthfulness of whatever our object of faith is. See, the beautiful thing about doubt is that it can lead us to a a more intimate relationship with God, a more deep and profound trust of him and in him when we realize that he himself is the object of our faith worth believing versus whatever our false lowercase g God is that we might have set up in our life. Doubts cause us to have those things shaken, but God himself doesn't ever shake or change. It is, in fact, our human condition as God's image bearers to think his thoughts after him. We all experience these existential moments or crises, so to speak, where we ponder how we came to be, you know, what life is all about, what am I here for, And these aren't things that simply our young people face. These are things that we all face, maybe even on a weekly basis. You know, what's my purpose in life? Am I really satisfied in my work and my employment? Am I satisfied wherever God has put me? We ask these big existential questions, but we often become so busy and maybe even too busy to want to entertain them. 
Uh, no joke, even earlier, a few days ago, I woke up and the very first thought that I had was this weird existential thought of, I'm never going to stop living. <laughs> it's a little scary whenever you have those moments, right? <laughs> You're like, oh, wow, I'm so used to seeing things change and go back and forth, come to life and die. I'm never going to die. Like, my soul that God has created is eternal. And as frightening as that might be to us, there's great comfort in knowing that the same God who's given us his word, the same God whom we believe, is the same God who has foreknown us intimately. He's the same God who knows these elect exiles in this passage. He's the same God who knows us in the midst of our sufferings and our trials. Now these transcendental thoughts or existential thoughts, they really do transcend the dealings that we have in our day-to-day basis. And they're often spurred on by moments of introspection. You know, moments where oftentimes it's brought about by suffering. It's brought about by times where things don't seem to go our way, and so we're caused to shrink back and to reinterpret things going on in our lives, to become introspective and thoughtful. Clear thinking allows us room in those moments to sift through our doubts and to kind of pick apart what we are believing and what is worth not believing in. And when we are led by the Spirit of God, as we meditate meditate upon the truth of Scripture, we are met with all kinds of honest answers to our doubt, even the deepest and darkest doubts that we all face. But, as we all know, we live in a very postmodernistic society, right? We live in a society of religious pluralism, a place where people are free to express their thoughts, and that can be very good in many ways, but also a place where we see things rising to the surface and gaining ground that shouldn't gain ground. Things that are not true that are influencing people to believe that they are true, even though they are very damaging. We live in an age where uh, we are busy. I mean, it's an age of unprecedented busyness. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I mean, I'm wearing a mini computer on my wrist even right now. I left my phone in the back seat, and yet here's a computer on my wrist called an Apple Watch. We're always attached to these things, and they're vying for our attention. We're getting pinged by emails and notifications and texts and all kinds of things vying for our attention, captivating us to the point where we have little time to become contemplative and to seriously seek answers to the questions we have in this life. To have actual time when we're faced with doubt, to even doubt our doubt. We often scurry from one place to the next. We're so busy trying to accomplish as much as we can in as little time as we can. And I, might just speaking to, I might just be speaking to myself, but I imagine a lot of us are in that same boat, and I know I'm guilty of that. But how often do you find yourself, friend, taking the time to simply be still and to know that God is God? On Friday night, I went to the wedding of one of my old roommates. Um, he is a native from Ohio. I think he called them Ohioans. Could be wrong. <laughs> I think I'm wrong. <laughs> yeah, something like that. <laughs> Anyways, uh, he's a native from Ohio and got married down in Lynchburg a couple days ago. Went down there, and uh, he actually served as a, a missionary to Mexico for many years and, and then studied at Liberty for a while. Great guy. We were roommates off and on, I think three times or so. <laughs> it's kind of funny. <laughs> but um, anyways, he got married, and uh, he and his wife decided that they really wanted to have <clears throat> a, a service, a ceremony 
that would allow all of his friends who speak Spanish, because they worship at a Spanish-speaking church down there in Lynchburg, a chance for them to all be part of this. And so they had the service over at Pate Chapel, their, their church at Thomas Road, uh, the, Hispanic church, the Hispanic church. And um, it was really interesting because I love that culture, but they operate very differently. Uh, the Spanish-speaking people, especially there, the ones who were at the wedding, and 80% of them were Hispanic who came as they were hearing the service given in both English and Spanish, and even a little bit of Spanglish. <laughs> um, but as they heard that, though, I mean, 80% of them were there who were speaking Spanish. And about over half of them, I'd say, came in about over halfway during the actual ceremony. <laughs> and, and they're okay with this. It's just how they operate. But the thing is, I love that culture. They have a very different view of time. They have a very different view of, of punctuality, even. And they value the idea of being present at an event, a very important event of all things, like a wedding ceremony. They value presence more than punctuality. It's interesting how much we can learn from people of different cultures who value things like that that we also ought to also honor and respect. Now, for those of us with type A personalities, like myself, <laughs> being late, especially to a wedding, is very irritating. <laughs> and so if that was my wedding, I'd be like, oh, okay, come on, <laughs> like, this isn't right, that's so disrespectful. But in that culture, again, I think they have a point of being present. I wonder how often we ourselves become irritated, for those of us like myself who are very timely with how we operate, I wonder if we also become irritated with God, though, when he doesn't seem to operate on our time frames. Sometimes God and his timing, even in the midst of our doubts and our suffering, they feel like this. It almost feels like he's a little too late to the party. When in reality, he's right on time. He doesn't always show up on our time, but he is still there. He's still present. He doesn't um, always show up in the same way that we want him to show up. But through his word, he ministers to us exactly where we need it. His countenance might seem to dissipate before us or be eclipsed even like a storm cloud eclipsing uh, the sun, the light of the sun. But he will, sure enough, dissipate those clouds and end up shining through in his right time. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are so much higher than ours. And his salvation comes at just the right time. Because God is immutable and unchanging. So the question is, do we trust him? This leads us to our second point for this morning. We've looked at God's unchangingness, his immutability. But now I want us to focus on the fact that God is faithful. He is truly faithful, even in the midst of our suffering. Now, as someone, a uh, little known fact, but as someone who's a huge Apple fan, <laughs> I've got the iPhone and all that good stuff, right? Even Apple TV. Like, you know you're an Apple geek when you have an Apple TV. But as someone who loves keeping up with Apple news, um, I actually end up watching YouTube videos pretty much almost every day on the latest and greatest news in the tech world. It's a little weird, I have to admit, but it's just something I like to do as a pastime. But one thing I've been keeping up with lately is how the advent of social media, in particular, has been propagating a sea of doubt and uncertainty and even eroding mental health among many people, even friends of mine. These things are, are things that are affecting Christians, and honestly, many Christians that I used to look up to 
heroes of the faith, and I won't mention any of them by name. They're not here in this area at all. It's just people I look up to over the last several years. They've seemed to have fallen away from the faith. And there have been several of them, more than just a handful, unfortunately. And oftentimes I see this trend in their lives where they neglect the truth of the Bible. It's not only its inerrancy, but even its sufficiency to speak into our lives. And they fall into this kind of progressive mindset, or what some theologians at Harvard or Yale would call a sociolinguistic kind of mindset, a theology that ends up kind of falling into full-blown atheism. Some of them perceive God as ever-evolving. They don't believe that he is unchanging. They believe that he does change over time, and his truth and his law changes to each culture in time. But that's not the God of the Bible. Some of them have also adopted panentheistic views, which is a fancy you know, theological term for basically saying that they believe that God is in everything in creation, and they confuse creation itself and the goodness of creation with the good and perfect creator himself. And while this doubt that they experience can be, in many ways, a tool for good, as we talked about earlier, they've used it in such a way that it's caused them confusion. Now, in a healthy sense, doubt that is steered by Scripture, that, that turns to Scripture in the moment of weakness, can drive us to a kind of beautiful resolve in our faith, like almost like a bitter glass of red wine with a sweet resolve at the end. When we're given over to the noisiness of social media, though, we're given over to the noisiness and the busyness of this life around us, whether in the workplace or on our computers, wherever it might take place, we end up steering clear from clear thinking. And we begin to suffer emotionally. Studies at Oxford even recently, over the past several years, uh, have shown that there's even a direct correlation between even regular usage of social media with the mental health of people with feelings of inadequacy, with depressive thoughts, or even unfavorable comparisons. And I don't, I don't know about you, but I know I've felt this myself. The more I use these things, the more I become dependent upon them. Now, I, don't, I certainly don't want to demonize a tool. That's not my aim here at all. I'm not trying to say social media is bad, don't ever use it. In fact, it is in many ways used for so much good, for connecting us with friends and people who've long moved away, of course, but the thing is, I wonder <clears throat> if we are even aware <clears throat> of how an undisciplined use of time promotes the growth of spiritual doubt. How an undisciplined uh, use of this time is almost like a kind of mold that grows in the darkness apart from our awareness. When we're given over to a sea of opinions on social media, kind of flicking through the newsfeed and scrolling down and being bombasted by all kinds of highs and lows going on in people's lives that they feel like sharing, it's no wonder why we don't find clarity, right? <laughs> Time for clear thinking. But when we try to reconcile these often anti-biblical views that we see on social media, I know I see it, I'm sure many of you do too, with the truth of scripture, we end up with a very confused faith. We end up with a faith that is not historic, that has been foretold of by the prophets, like 1 Peter talks about. We end up with a faith that is ever-evolving, and that leads to destruction. See, as Christians, we know that Christianity, as it's given to us in the Bible, is the most and really the only consistent worldview. 
Now, I realize that in our postmodern society, to say that this word is true, it's infallible, that it is even the only proper worldview to have is pretty much blasphemous. You can't really say that in today's day and age, so to speak. But think about it this way. If there is one God who has truly made all things and who has revealed himself to us through his word, and his word is without error, then the faith that was delivered once for all the saints is both singular and it's unchanging and it can be found and it can be trusted in. And this is exactly what Peter is trying to say to us in 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12. See, he appeals to this truth of God's faithfulness in the midst of a sea of doubt. The Christians in this passage were riddled with suffering as we'll continue to see as this series continues over the next few months. But Peter reassured them that Christianity is true, that scripture itself drives us to one central key truth, that Christ suffered for us, suffered for our sins, and that he inherited these subsequent glories through his resurrection. See, we face trials We face heartache, but the God of the Bible is still with us. He knows us. He loves us. So Christian, do you believe that God hears you? As we were singing to him even a moment ago in our time of worship, do you believe that God actually wanted to hear your voice in the midst of the rest? As even this word of God is open before you, whether on your phone or even right in front of you on your lap, do you believe that he wants to speak to you through this word, his scripture? As we take even the sacrament of the Lord's Supper in a few moments here, do you believe that God wants to commune and to fellowship with you as you take the bread and the wine? Do you believe that Christ is being offered to you? Church, as 1 Peter 1 verse 10 says, the same prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be the early Christians is the same grace that is offered to you. And that grace has a name. It's Jesus. That grace was a gift. The Son of God, the darling of heaven, suffered, was crucified, and was risen for you. As that old hymn says, this is my Father's world. And since we live in God's world, when we experience different kinds of suffering or loss or pain or heartache without knowing the only fitting and proper salve to meet us in those times of weakness, namely Christ, we miss out on experiencing the hope of that glory that we have to await as Christians that follows suffering. The reason we hear of people who walk away from the faith is because they've abandoned their first love. Heroes of mine, like I mentioned before, when we see them fall and we see them walk away and deny Christianity, it's because they've walked away from Christ in the midst of suffering more often than not, rather than clinging to that hope. Now, it's become popular in broader evangelical circles today to, quote-unquote, deconstruct one's faith. It's that movement called deconstructionism. And what it basically entails is essentially deconstructing your faith, going back to some kind of more primitive way of looking at faith, which goes outside the Bible, and they end up embracing this ever-shifting cultural norms that change over time regarding morality and sexuality and ethics and justice. But in doing so, many people 
especially people in my own generation where I see it more prevalent than not, um, those around like age 30 or 40 or so, they choose to question God rather than doubting their own doubts. Friends, I may be preaching to the choir here, so to speak, but scripture itself is more than sufficient to handle our doubts and these existential questions we have. There's a stark difference between believing in God and believing God, friends. And while the word faith, like you may have noticed, is not necessarily here in this passage, in these verses right here, I believe that Peter is showcasing more than hardly anything else the faithfulness of God in the midst of suffering. How God is faithful to the end. The same prophecies that he put forth in the prophet's mouths from of old, he fulfilled in himself. And he will continue to use that to minister to us to this day. The implicit plea of Peter, as one who had known Christ both in his time of suffering before his death, but also post-resurrection, his glory (laughs) that belongs to him. His main plea was that we who read this should believe the grace that had been predicted by the Spirit in the days of the Old Testament prophets that was fulfilled in the life of Christ during his own life here on earth and his ministry, and that was attested to by the apostles who witnessed such things. So friends, this brings us to our third and final point for this morning. And that is this, God's answer to our suffering. Now when you read through scripture carefully, especially the Old Testament, you see these glimpses of a promised redemption to come. Abraham, who was unable to have his own kids by birth, believed God when God told him, no, actually you will. And in fact, this child who will be born of you, Isaac, will be, through his seed, a blessing to all of the nations. And Abraham didn't just believe in God, he believed God in that time. Job suffered all forms of death, writhing pain, boils, and all kinds of actual pain upon his physical body. He was even despised and rejected by his own friends. They were very, um, they had misappropriated and well-intended things that they were trying to say to him that were hurtful to him in his time of suffering. And yet he believed God that in the midst of his suffering even, his Redeemer still lived. And that one day his Redeemer would even walk upon the earth, bringing redemption and restoration to this broken, fallen world. King David in Psalm 24 believed God that one day the Son of Man, the Son of God himself, would uh, stand in the temple. The very one who had clean hands and a pure heart, as Psalm 24 says, as we alluded to in the call to worship this morning, the very one who had clean hands and a pure heart, who did not tip his soul to what is false or swear deceitfully, would receive blessing from God, the very God of his salvation. And that that blessing would be even advanced and given through that inheritance to all of Christ's people, all of those who are in union with him, extending that salvation to all of them alike. See, Jesus Christ is our suffering servant as Isaiah prophesied, the very one who would bear our shame and our sin upon the cross, drinking down to the very dregs the full cup of God's wrath for sin. Christ humbled himself to the point of death, as Philippians 2 tells us, even to the death of a Roman cross for our sake. At the cross, judgment 
for sin was met with unfathomable grace. At the cross, justice and mercy kissed, as the prophets foretold. Christ, according to Isaiah 53, long before even this writing in 1 Peter, Christ was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. And a little further in on Isaiah 53, it says this, that he made his soul an offering for guilt. And catch this, it says that Christ shall see his offspring, but truly Christ has seen his offspring. He's seen us, his people. It says that Christ shall prolong his days, and as the prophets foretold, Christ did prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand, Isaiah says, and again, the will of the Lord is and will continue to prosper in his hand as it already is. So friends, how is this message of suffering and glory of benefit to us? I want us to kind of land here this morning. First of all, Christ is the very grace of God spoken of in this passage. He is not only the suffering servant, but also the king of glory. Our forerunner, our hope of glory, the one worth fixing our eyes upon and pursuing in faith. As followers of Jesus, as those who have taken his yoke upon us, who learn from him, who trust in him for salvation from sin, we likewise follow in his footsteps. And when we as Christians suffer, we share in the sufferings of Christ. Friend, he knows exactly what you're going through. He knows exactly what kind of suffering you might be faced with even right now. See, in this passage, I love this aspect of it, but there are two key aspects of salvation here. When it talks about that word salvation, there are kind of two sides of this. The first, talked about in verses 10 through 11, has mostly to do with this promise of coming salvation that came to us in the very person and work of Jesus. Redemption, right? That big R word, redemption, from our sins. But another kind of R word is also implicit here in this text. The word called restoration. See, restoration from this world of sin belongs to us who are in Christ. This perfect wholeness, peace, shalom that Christ is bringing to us. The very one who's making all things new. He's bringing that to us even now as we live this eternal life that he's given us. So Christian, in this life, as we continue to experience suffering, even though we have been saved from the power of sin, we yet await that day of glory, that day when we'll be free of the presence of sin, where all things are made right again, where all wrongdoings that have been done against you will be put asunder. As Revelation 22 tells us, there will be in that day no longer anything that is accursed in the glory land that awaits us. The throne of God and of the Lamb, Christ Jesus himself, will be restored on this earth. It will be on this restored earth, rather. And we will see his face. We will worship him. His name will be upon us for all eternity. Death, night, and decay will be no more. There will be no need for lamp nor light of the sun because the Lamb himself is our light. And we will reign with him forever. So in conclusion, 
The mystery of Christ in regard to our suffering and the glory to come is great. But in the midst of our suffering, we may not know always the why behind what we face, but we always know the who as Christians. The who who is still in control in the midst of whatever it is that we are going through. The world tries to operate apart from this kind of knowledge, apart from the very lordship of Christ, and things don't seem to make sense. But for us as Christians, we can still operate knowing and believing the who behind what we face. In short, friends, the grace of Christ is still worth preaching. The grace of Christ is still worth clinging fast to. The grace of Christ is still worth holding fast to, even in awesome wonder. And to kind of send us off on a quote, I love this quote from C.S. Lewis, as he dealt with suffering of his own kind. Hear these words that he said. I know now, Lord, why you utter no answer to me. Because you are yourself the answer. Before your face, all of my questions die away. What other would suffice? With that in mind, let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are our good and gracious God. That in the times where we feel like we've been put down or the times that we feel like we are in over our heads, you're the, ones, you're the one who holds us. You're the one who knows us, who cares for us so deeply, and who gives to us your very word to guide us and to direct us in the knowledge of the truth. Father, we thank you that we don't go at this life alone, but that we have you with us. God, we're thankful that you are our king and our God, the very one who brings us salvation. So Father, as we turn our attention now to the beauty of of your communion with us as given through the Lord's Supper, God, we ask that you would stir in our hearts afresh a deep and sincere love for you again, Lord, and that you be pleased to do this uh, for our sake and for your glory. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.